Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the Tory Islamophobia round. Lee Anderson ups his war of words with Sadiq Khan by again refusing to apologise and accusing the Mayor of London of overseeing double standards for political benefit. Plus, a pro-Palestine mob brought the capital to a standstill and illegally blockaded Tower Bridge over the weekend while the police simply watched on. And if re-elected, Donald Trump vows to deport Prince Harry, whose US visa is in jeopardy, over his shock drug confessions. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. And it's another huge week in the dangerous world of international journalism, and we are all over it for you. All over the Westminster weirdos who seem to think that all we care about in this country is Islamophobia. All over the mess that is the Metropolitan Police and the Palestinian marches. And of course, we're all over the world of woke tonight as well. This time, the Church of England vows to go even woker. Oh, and we've got a bit of an exclusive from the world of justice as well. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Clear those decks. Now, Rishi Sunak has been forced to deny the Conservatives have a problem with Islamophobia today as he spoke out for the first time on the Lee Anderson controversy. The row over the former Deputy Chairman's rant about Sadiq Khan intensified after Cabinet members refused to call the Ashfield MP out for racism or Islamophobia with Transport Secretary Mark Harper keeping the door open to restoring the Commons whip if Mr Anderson apologises. Let's bring in Monday night's panel for their reaction, because right here alongside me, journalist at Telegraph, Stephen Edgington, and author and journalist Laura Dodsworth. Very good evening to both of you. Thank you very much for joining us. What an absolute and utter shambles of a, of a week last week and now of a weekend where you think the only two things that mattered in the whole world were Gaza and whether or not the Tory party is Islamophobic. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But in reality, there is, an, there is a much more important story here, Mike, that is being ignored. And that is that MPs are now having to have bodyguards mm. to protect them from extremists on the street. Yeah. And when I say extremists, I mean Islamic extremists. Let's yeah. be clear about that. Those are the words the Prime Minister couldn't tweet out right. because he refused to take the issue head on. Mm. I think that we've seen, I mean, with the murder of David Amos, for example, yeah. there is a real threat here posed by... As I say, these people who are marching yeah. and so on and, and are supporting Hamas in some cases. Mm. We've recently seen convictions of people yeah. support, supporting Hamas, the terrorist group. So us banging on about Islamophobia because of some comments, sort of mis, misfired comments from Lee Anderson, mm. 
um, is a complete distraction from a much more serious issue. It is. Mm. And, of course, um, it was the Speaker of the House himself who actually said he didn't want to have blood on his hands last week, mm. and that was the reason why he did that ridiculous manoeuvring which caused all the trouble in the first place with all the different amendments. I'm not going to go into it all over again. But he was assured by, we think, either Keir Starmer or somebody quite close to Keir Starmer that MPs' lives and certainly their safety was in jeopardy. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about Lee Anderson and we're going to talk about Lindsay Hall, but this is not what we should be talking yeah. about. What we should be talking about, the fact that while Lee Anderson's words were clumsy... Yeah, well, he says was, they were clumsy. Yeah, sure, and perhaps a bit incendiary towards Sadiq Khan. The fact is he expressed a sentiment that most of the British mm. public will get behind. Let's put what he said into a context within the month. So I think it was the day he said it, Tabridge was closed down. Yeah. And um, we had genocidal slogans emblazoned on Westminster. Yeah. And, and, Mike, you know I'm never ashamed of this country. I'm proudly mm. patriotic. I love Britain. I love the British people. But on that day, I felt sick to the pit of my stomach. And when Lee Anderson put out his statement about it, he said he felt sick. Yeah. Now, that is a real emotional connection mm -hmm. that people believe. They, You know, it's not disingenuous. It's not playing politics. He really believed it. And I felt that too. I felt sad to right. my bones. I felt ashamed that our institutions allowed those horrible words mm. to go onto the mother of Parliament. Yeah. So there's a much bigger crisis here. When Lindsay Hoyle contorts parliamentary procedure and therefore democracy, because Islamists are threatening the lives of MPs, mm. it's because, not just because of an imported Islamism problem, Islamist extremists. Yeah. Let me make that clear in case anyone thinks I'm being anti-Muslim. Right. That's not just the problem. The problem is that our politicians and the Speaker, who should be upholding what Parliament is about, have lost faith themselves in the institution. And if you lose faith in the Mother of Parliament, you've lost faith mm. in this country. Yeah. And I was ashamed last week. I was as well. And we talked about all of this last week, Wednesday and Thursday, and how ridiculous the whole situation had become. But what we also learned over the weekend is that one of the guys speaking outside of Parliament, I um, can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's some Palestinian activist, and his basic um, sort of chant was, we're going to make them lock down Parliament. We should invade it. We should get in there and occupy Parliament. You know, so this guy is, is to all intents and purposes, if he was running a football um, march or if he was Tommy Robinson, he would have been arrested right there and then for causing havoc and potentially causing a breach of the peace. But he wasn't arrested. Uh, and, in fact, I think the police might be having a look at what he said. But the police also said that from the river to the sea uh, can be a, a crime if you utter it in certain circumstances, but projecting it onto a, a, the Palace of Westminster and Big Ben apparently isn't a crime. Nonsense. And I know. the British public won't agree with that at all. Of course not. All these accusations of Islamophobia are sounding increasingly like a discouragement from making any criticism at all not just of the religion, but of, of anything yeah. that's inconvenient. And do you know what it means? You know, when they try to equate Islamism with far-right terror threats, what that sounds like to me is actually just a war on mm. white working-class British people. It sounds classist, right. frankly, but we're not supposed to talk about that, no. are we? And do you know what the real threat is? 80% of live counter-terrorist police investigations are Islamist mm. extremists. Right. So and when this... you see from the river to the sea, yeah. everywhere, and weekly hate marches for, what is it now, five months, mm. calling for global intifada, yes. that's the real threat. Well, exactly right. And, Stephen, all day today, for example, I've been seeing various different pundits, left-wing pundits mostly, going on about how safe London is, how great it is, how it's not in any way under siege, how Lee Anderson couldn't be more wrong. A couple of Tory MPs today said parts of Tower Hamlets are no-go areas. They are, mm. you know, and I know it because I don't live very far from there.
Well, if you look as well what happened in Rochdale in mm. terms of this by-election where Gaza has dominated yeah. an election which is extraordinary in England. Some Have you seen the death war. threat to this Simon Dunshaw? This is what I was going to say. Yeah. It was exactly this. Is mm. The Reform Party candidate um, was, was threatened. His life was threatened by, right. again, an Islamic extremist. And yeah. this just goes to show, again, the issues that we're all talking about today. Right. It's not Islamophobia. It's the threats from Islamic extremism. Right. And I was speaking today with um, an historian, Robert Toombs, and we were talking about precedents in English history mm. as to whether mobs have been able to cow Parliament before. And he said the last time that this has happened was in the 1830s when mobs went around sort of violently uh, destroying London mm. in order to pass the Reform Act in Parliament. Yeah. So this hasn't happened in hundreds of years. Yeah. Left-wing journalists, as you say today, they're completely ignoring the fact that Parliament has just been cowed by right. um, mobs outside and harassing MPs and so on, this almost unprecedented mm. thing in the last 200 years. And instead, they're focusing on some silly words from Lee Anderson. Right. And they're sort of flash mobs. It's not just happening here. There was an incident in Stoke over the weekend um, where a bunch of Islamic um, you know, terrorists, for want of a better word, sort of broke into a, a, a meeting that was being held in the Conservative Club perfectly reasonable meeting being held, somebody shouting at people. There's been some um, shop up in Rochdale, I think it was, attacked by people because they're selling Coca-Cola, which apparently is now deemed to be in some way uh, anti-Islamic. I mean, it's just ridiculous what's going on and nobody seems to be wanting to talk about it. Yeah, and what we should be talking about, and I feel like banging my head on yeah, the desk no, about it really, is anti-Semitism. So last year, 2023, there were over 4,000 anti-Semitic incidents and... 2,400 were in Greater London. Yeah. So Sadiq Khan responded to Lee Anderson's comments with how Islamophobic they were and said the great shame is that it will put Muslim people off entering politics. And I thought, sorry, this is a complete inversion mm. of what's really happening. We're going to have MPs who don't want to go into politics because of a genuine Islamist threat, which is... It's a genuine phys physical danger that they, yes. they could be under, not just rhetoric, not just rhetoric. And we've got Jews who don't feel like London is safe. Mm. You know, central London and, you know, Tower Hamlets and various areas are like no-go zones for them. Now, he's the police and crime commissioner. Right. What is he doing about right. it? Well, we have seen MPs, Tory MPs, have actually stood down because of threats to them in terms of in, when people in Jewish areas and yeah. things like that, where their offices have well, been Well, the Finchley MP is, is, is going. It's a great example. Mm. And this is an area where Lindsay Hoyle really hasn't shown leadership. Instead of standing up to mm. these threatening mobs yeah. as Islamist extremists, he gave in to them yeah. last week. And this whole situation seems to be the wrong way around. Yeah, it really does. And also the definition is even a row, isn't it? Because you've got Kemi Badenoch today refusing to talk to Baroness Walsey, who, who is all over the Tory party, saying you must adopt Islamophobia as a term. She prefers to use the, the phrase Muslim hate which seems much more appropriate. And I was reading that there's an organisation called MEND. I don't know whether you know too much about them. Uh, they are uh, an organisation which is all about um, sort of promoting British Muslims and empowering and encouraging them uh, to be more actively involved in British media and politics. Well, I think they've succeeded, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like Muslim people are feeling particularly inhibited from entering the political arena. I'm not sure the way we've seen it happen in the last week is, is great. Right. But, yeah, this definition of Islamophobia is a real problem because the um, definition that Labour is proposing really includes pretty much any sort of criticism of anything Muslim whatsoever yeah. or perceived criticism. Well, it's a blasphemy law, isn't it? Any, anyone, yeah, anyone can say, well, I perceive that as right. Islamophobia, and it is. Right. This is madness. Right. And I think it is a total deflection from the real elephant in the room, which is genuine Islamist extremism, which we're all seeing playing out. So we, we already have uh, blasphemy laws in Britain. You, you could not, on this programme tonight, 
burn a Quran without being arrested because it would incite violence and so on, and the police would yeah. claim... Well, hang on, we don't have blasphemy laws. Laws. We have de facto well, blasphemy That's what I'm laws. saying, that's what I'm saying. We already have de facto... That's what I meant, sorry. We have de facto I'm also not allowed to set fire to anything in here anyway, so I wouldn't <laughs> do it, you know, obviously here. Well, but there's a, there's a bit of a disparity because if you went out and burned a Bible outside right yeah. now, you could do it completely fine. Right. If you burned a Quran, you couldn't do that because the police would arrest you under the mm. Public Order Act and say that you're right. inciting um, sort of disturbances in yeah. the peace and things like that. Well, of course. I mean, we saw an incident at the weekend in Waterloo Station as well. I think it was football related, um, where there was some, you know, sort of punch ups going on. The police wading in with, with you know, head cracking, you know, truncheons, punching people. You know, you've never seen them behave so differently than as they had behaved on um, Wednesday night last night, last week in, in Parliament, outside Parliament, and also at Tower Bridge, where they were just standing there sort of watching. I failed to see. Apparently, it's illegal to project anything onto the Houses of Parliament. I know people have done it in the past with sort of promotional activities, but you can easily arrest people for that. They just don't want to. That's, that's exactly it. You know, the sadness about all of this, really, is that Lee Anderson's comments we're a bit crude, a bit clumsy, but we're all talking about it and we're yeah. talking about the wrong thing. It's been a gift to the metropolitan elites, but I am 100% sure he's not out of kilter mm. with most of the, most of the British yeah. public. Well, I'm going to give my view on, on what he said a little bit later on the show, but, but, but at least it's quite nice to see a politician who doesn't say something and then just immediately apologise because he gets pressurised yeah. to say he was sorry. At least he's sticking to his guns. Whether you agree with him or not, mm -hmm. I think he's done a great thing by actually putting his, his marker down to say, no, this is my opinion, this is what I think, I believe I'm right, I'm not going to say sorry, why should he? I agree. I loved it. It's electrifying. Mm. I mean, how terribly sad that that is the most electrifying thing we've got in politics mm. at the moment. But a politician refusing to kind of cravenly capitulate to the mob right. is so refreshing. It really is. No, no one believes these apologies when they do when when no. it happens. When you try and when you cancel someone and you it's have all to a bit grovel. little Britain-like, isn't it? You know, when I accidentally tripped mm. and found myself inside another man, and you go, <laughs> "Really? Did you? Are you really sorry? Is your wife really standing next to you and holding your hand and really, really uh, is still very happy with you?" No, absolutely nobody believes a word of it. But the Tories even can't seem to get this right, can they? Because they can't agree on whether Islamophobia is a thing. They can't agree whether whether Lee Anderson is right, and they can't agree whether Rishi Sunak is wrong. I think the Tories are in a real mess over this whole situation, and particularly with the comments that Lee Anderson mm. made, it's really opened them up to a kind of criticism from the left and from, and from various right. different parties. But also, the Tories also recognise that, well, we have to recognise, the Tories are to blame for 14 years of mass immigration. And I think let's not forget that I think these situations now in terms of Gaza, all of these protests, right. they're, they're novel, we shouldn't normalise them. No. And they have been part How of... long are they going to go on for? Because well, this quite... war could go on for a year. Are we going to have a, a bloody protest every week? Possibly. I mean, this, happening, this is happening all across Europe and it seems that I think this really is a result of decades-long immigration policy mm. where we've been importing millions and millions of people from yeah. all sorts of countries where they care about these foreign wars far more than um, we do of as, as British people. Right. And, and well, isn't it ridiculous that here we are, we're in the midst of sort of by-election seasons, there's by-elections going off right, left and centre and the big issue seems to be what the hell we do about uh, Israel and, and, and Palestine. There's so many issues that face Britain at the moment. High taxes, um, massive amounts of yeah. debt, the NHS waiting list, right. all of these things that are impacting our domestic politics. And yet we seem to be spending every single week talking about Gaza, talking mm. about a foreign war, talking about Islamophobia, yeah. rather than the massive issues facing normal British yeah. people every day. Exactly right. But Absolutely in, staggering. In addition to that, you know, if, if you wanted to play whatabouty, and I'm sure none of us like that, 
Where's um, where's the call for the one to two million Uyghurs in China yeah. to be re released well, there from isn't. detention? No. When I did this, when Prince William went banging on about it the other week, you know, he hasn't mentioned any of the other 100 conflicts that he could have mentioned. He mentions the trendy one. Of course he does. Mm. But we'll come back to both of you because there's lots to do. You're watching the one and only Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, lacklustre policing in London. The Met are under fire for their lack of law enforcement at pro-Palestine rallies. Much more on this coming up after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. As we've just been discussing, Tory MP Lee Anderson is standing firm in the mounting Islamophobia row. In fact, he's doubled down by also taking aim at the policing of pro-Palestine protests. On Saturday, demonstrators let off flares and shut down Tower Bridge, but not a single arrest was made. It comes after the Met Police were accused of standing by and watching from the river to the sea being projected onto Big Ben. Joining me now in the studio is former police superintendent Leroy Logan and down the line, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, uh, Jake Wallace-Simons. Jake, let me start with you. Um, I just want to ask you about the sort of current Islamophobia mania that seems to be gripping everybody as if it's the only thing that we actually care about. Um, I think Lee Anderson is right the second time, if you like, to talk about the police. And we know, for example, the police have been advised by some very curious characters, two of whom had to be let go, I think, back end of last year, who turned out to be quite um, effective pro-Palestinian supporters, you know. Um, but the police still seem to not want to arrest anybody. I was saying just before, there was a guy standing outside Parliament last week calling for the Parliament to be invaded effectively, calling for it to be put into lockdown, calling for people to sort of, you know, threaten MPs and push them and, and shove them and threaten them. You know, I don't understand why the police are being quite as standoffish as they are. Yeah, I mean, it struck me when I saw that um, that slogan from the river to the sea projected onto Big Ben and everybody, all the, poli the police were saying it wasn't illegal. They were reaching for the context, which is something that people often do when Jews are concerned. I thought to myself, imagine if it was a white supremacist slogan. Yeah. If it was something that was anti-black or, or if it was an, an Islamophobic slogan, anti-Muslim. Yeah. Um, and then the people projecting the slogan said, no, 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 it's not. It's not anti-black. It's not anti-Muslim. The black people and the Muslim people were saying, yes, it is. Mm. What would happen then? How would the police behave if it was a group of white nationalists or football hooligans rampaging through our streets and obstructing the traffic and breaking into shops and intimidating mm. people and all the rest of it? I think they would get their truncheons out, frankly. Uh, and so there does seem to be a bit of a double standard when it comes to... Uh, protesters who are coming from a progressive left point of view, which dovetails, unfortunately, with Islamism, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, or the, the pro-Palestinian uh, lot, uh, a lot of whom move between causes, frankly. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing I would suggest uh, that people become aware of is you mentioned the group MEND the, uh, just earlier. Yeah. Uh, MEND is a group which is something quite controversial for it because of its links to various people with various extreme views. It defended the jihadi group Hizbut Tahrir, which has been designated as a terrorist group, and it's run prayers for a Palestinian victory. That group we exposed in the JC this week uh, has been training the police in Islamophobia. Right. It's also been training the NHS in anti-Islamophobia and various universities as well. So we expose that. I hope something will be done about it. But it just goes to show how when you have a progressive agenda that you respect and raise above the law, 
sometimes the police can become vulnerable to not enforcing the law. Yeah, that's a problem. But let me talk to, to Leroy Logan about that. Leroy, hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Um, is there, has there been a problem inside the police in terms of who they go to for kind of advice, if you like? You know, what Jake was just describing there. Certain groups which you might think probably shouldn't be advising the police on, on anything, really, but somehow get sort of brought in. We saw, I think it was a couple of uh, guys last year who were let go because one of them was recorded as singing or shouting from the river to the sea. He was a senior police advisor on, on you know, Muslims and Islam. The police can sometimes get unstuck when it comes to people that advise them. I remember as far back as the 80s, they brought over certain Jamaican gangsters yeah. called Yardies. Right. I remember and, the Yardies. And, yeah, and they, and they brought them in to be advisors right. and, and, and to be informants. And in the end, they came over to uh, sort a few people out. Right on the payroll of the Met. So mm. this, this is a not a, a good science. They've never got it totally right. Mm. And sometimes you have to wonder, how do they select these people? What criteria? What's their skills? And are they giving you sound advice? It would appear that whoever's advising the Met is making them super cautious. Mm. Um, however, it doesn't discount the possibility that they might not arrest them at the time, they can arrest them afterwards. I'm not saying that's the case, but it might be arresting them at the time will cause a major disturbance and it's better to tail them off or monitor them by CCTV yes. or whatever and arrest them afterwards. And that was all fine and dandy, I think, when it started. I mean, Jake, I've been talking about these marches being ridiculous since the first one happened, I think, on the first weekend of October 7th, you know. Um, and now we've got to this stage where you can't keep using the same excuse, I don't think, by saying, oh, yeah, we, we don't want to arrest anybody at the time. You know, these marches can't go on forever. Surely the police have got to put a marker down at some point and say... Now we're going to start wading in. You know, I saw them on Saturday, I think it was, wading into a group of football supporters at Waterloo, more than happy to throw punches and hit people with truncheons. But you know, why can't they do that with this lot? I think partly it's because the police, superficially anyway, the police feel outnumbered. You know, there was that, that clip, wasn't there, circulating a few weeks ago where the cops said... Uh, there are more of them than there are of us. We can't, we can't do anything. All we can do is try to play a defensive game, as it were. Uh, but like you say, that doesn't apply in every case, for example, with football hooligans. I think the deeper thing is that not just in terms of policing, but also in terms of our foreign policy, our attitude to the world, our posture to the world, is that we've forgotten the value of deterrent. Mm. We've thought that the most important thing is to be nice to accommodate people and to make them feel welcome. And we apply that even when there are people who clearly do us harm. And we've forgotten sometimes that in order to win peace, you've got to have some aggression mm. to create deterrence to the people who actually are intent on disrupting society or attacking us or undermining our way of life. And so the laws are all there. The anti-hate speech laws are there. It's illegal to support Hamas, which is a prescribed terrorist organization. All of those laws are there. The police just need to, to, to begin to enforce the law robustly. And if they did that on one week, I think you would find that the following week, there'll be fewer people taking up the challenge on our streets. I think that's right, because, Leroy, if you've got, say, for example, a bulk of, of, the, of the marchers who are just kind of what you might call kind of trendy hangers-on who think it's a good cause and they quite fancy a day out, you know, those are the people that would stop coming if they thought that it was going to be a problem and if they thought they might get arrested. You know, you might maybe stop the kind of extremist types, but, but you'll, you'll, you'll get rid of a large number of people. 
But, I mean, they've learned, have they not, the police, how to deal with just up oil. They've started using different tactics. Is it not time now to stop with this kind of special treatment and, and learn some new tactic to stop the marches? Uh, I, I think... They're, they're stuck in a groove for whatever reason. I, I totally agree that they have to be seen to be firm but fair in uh, affecting um, a, a march that is not breaching the law or anyone involved in it. Um, I think they, they are not being consistent mm. because, as you say, um, with other types of protests, white supremacists, football, hooligans, all that sort of things, they are very, very no-nonsense mm. and very intolerant anyone strain off um, in little pockets or whatever. So I, I think they really have to raise their game on mm. this because um, it has been going on for months now. And, and, it, and it's also in the national interest because there's a lot of people feeling unnerved by yeah, this definitely. and there doesn't seem to be that reassurance that police have got a grip on it. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and just to make things even more ridiculous, let's have a look at what Charlotte Church has been up to as well. So, that's Charlotte Church, the so-called voice of an angel, Jake. I'm glad to see you smiling there. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on out there. The police don't seem to know whether this is an illegal chant or not. You know, it's only illegal, they say, in certain contexts. Not illegal when you project it onto the Houses of Parliament, even though projecting anything onto the Houses of Parliament is technically illegal. Um, singing it uh, in a sort of choir-like voice, apparently not illegal. But saying it, possibly illegal? Uh, yeah, it's, it's just so hilarious to see, really, because Charlotte Church, you know, the great sort of um, proponent of, of liberal Western values, you know, uh, of, uh, of sexual freedom, religious freedom, freedom of speech and so forth, is totally anathema to the regime in Gaza that she seems to be singing in support of. I suppose she wouldn't say she's supporting uh, terror, but it does seem to blend into one, really. I mean, even on the, on the West Bank, in the more moderate area, her lifestyle would not be... Would not be welcome and this is somebody who has campaigned hard uh, against sexual violence in the past and sexual violence of course was extreme uh, on october the 7th but look in terms of um in, in terms of from the river to the sea that that slogan i think that it, it's really interesting isn't it that when jewish people say that that is racist and that it clearly means that it wants to wipe out jews from the map in fact as evidence of that a hamas leader used the phrase himself on Turkish TV just a couple of weeks ago. So clearly it is linked to that in their mind. But when Jewish people say that, and then the, the world at large and the authorities say, no, 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 no. There's a context here, you know, keep your, keep your hair on. You know, we're gonna tell you what's anti-Semitic and what isn't, and you've got to pipe down. Yeah. Whereas any other minority, if there was a, black people, for example, saying there's a particular chant that we find is linked to slavery and, and brings back those memories and that we find threatening, mm. people would say, okay, well, if you find it threatening and intimidating, therefore it must be, and we're going to clamp down on it. Yeah. This double standards of, of, of treatment of Jews and, and everybody else really has come out very powerfully in recent months.
Yeah, I'm afraid it has. Charlotte Church, of course, says that uh, she is in no way anti-Semitic and she's, in fact, fighting for the liberation of all people, she says. Uh, she says the chat isn't calling for the obliteration of Israel. Uh, instead, she says it's calling for the peaceful coexistence of Israelis and Palestinians. And if you buy that one, uh, I've got some uh, swamp land in Florida to sell you to build a bridge on. I mean, Leroy, it's amazing what people are getting away with and what they're coming out with. You're just kind of going, sorry, what the hell are you talking about? I'm still laughing about the swamp land joke. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, in, in all honesty, it shows there's a lot of confusion. There's yeah. a, a lot of people don't know how to, to run this. I, I mean, we've even got um, um, certain MPs saying homo, um, Islamophobic comments and no one's even acknowledging that's the case. Mm. And, and, and so everyone is in a state of inconsistency. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, the police are being influenced by the political um, government, uh, may, maybe centrally as well as regionally yeah. with the mayor, yeah. say, listen, let's just take it easy, don't um, add fuel to the fire or in any way. Because I just can't see how they are being so easy going with it. Mm. I, I mean, I, I must admit, I, I remember going on the Black Lives Matter march after George Floyd, and I was shocked how um, officers were being extremely nice yeah. and cautious, which I did welcome uh, because it, it went on peacefully. Uh, and, you know, obviously people were um, upset about George Floyd. So there must be something that's advised them, let's t take it easy. But at the same time, the wider public needs to know that police are being consistent and are not tolerating clear breaches of the law and allowing people to flout the law. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Leroy, thanks very much indeed. Uh, thanks very much as well to, uh, to Jake Wallace-Simons. Thanks, both of you. Um, coming up, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Lefty establishments, The Beeb and The Guardian, are under fire for failing to report crucial details in a cat-killer murder case. More on that story after this. A writer at The Guardian has written a complaint accusing the newspaper of deceiving its readers for using the word woman in its headline. Louise Tickle is boycotting the paper for failing to tell its readers that a cat killer who murdered a stranger was in fact transgender. The BBC has now put in their two pennies worth, reporting on the same story, but again failing to mention that the killer Scarlet Blake was transgender. Joining me now is Director of Case Operations and Outreach at Free Speech Union, Mr Ben Jones. Ben, um, very, very good evening to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Um, I see that J.K. Rowling has joined into the fray uh, tonight, having seen the uh, ridiculous report in The Guardian uh, and the letter of complaint from Louise Tickle. She said, I'm so, I'm so sick of this shizer, for want of a better word. This is not a woman. These are not our crimes. I mean... This is now getting to beyond a joke, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say you must be able to call a trans woman a woman, but surely it's a trans woman when you're reporting on a court case and somebody's been found guilty of murder. I don't know about you, Mike, but every time I log into Twitter, it seems to be every week there's one of these cases yeah. where there is some obscene graphic um, sexual violence or murder or rape or some horrific crime that's been committed that is inexplicably mysteriously attached to somebody with she and her pronouns that defies all common sense and all the experience of people who are actually alive, living in the real world, and know that the overwhelming majority of violent sexual crimes are committed by men. Yeah. We all know this. It's obvious. Right. It's perfectly clear. Um, and yet we have uh, media outlets, including the BBC, unfortunately, that consistently lie to readers, 
viewers, listeners about what's going on. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and the complaint letter is, is very straightforward. You know, she talks about, Louise Tickle talks about reading the story on Saturday and at no time in the story uh, was she under the impression that the murder and the horrific murder that it was, was committed by a man. She thought it was committed by a woman. There was no reference to transgender. There was no reference uh, to the previous name of the individual. And it seems to me that that surely is um, willful bias, actually leaving out facts from a story, which is the cardinal error of any journalistic uh, journalistic school, isn't it? Well, well done to her for standing up to it. It takes some courage to do that. I think she'd been writing for the paper for decades. So it does take some moral courage and some backbone and to have the courage of your convictions to uh, defy your employer and stand up for common sense in that way and to stand up for the Guardian's readers uh, who like the uh, readers and viewers of all media outlets deserve to have the truth reported to them. I think what The Guardian does is The Guardian's business, mm. ultimately. I regret that it misinforms its its viewers, and also, sorry, I should say its readers, by disseminating this sort of information. But the BBC, um, uh, with its unique position in the media landscape, has no business misleading or misinforming its viewers mm. with the kind of misinformation it pumps out about this sort of criminal activity. Right. No, it's absolutely got no business whatsoever. And she says, quite rightly, news reporters should only report facts and newspapers should only publish facts in their news sections. I mean, she's not even saying that you can't have a columnist who, who does this kind of thing. You can't have a, um, you know, an opinion piece written by somebody at The Guardian uh, in which they continually name this person as a woman. That would be fine, even for Louise Tickle. But it's not fine to put it in the news section. And, and the BBC should, should know that as well. Well, it's incredible, I think, with the BBC that there's been this great moral panic in the last five years about misinformation, the danger that misinformation poses to democracy. And there is, of course, BBC Verify, uh, which uh, sets out to challenge misinformation uh, and to correct it. Uh, it seems completely outrageous that the BBC, with the left hand, is doing that. And with the right, it's pumping out misinformation of this sort that's completely transparent, that everyone with any common sense can see through. Yes. Well, I mean, unfortunately for BBC Verify, the woman who runs BBC Verify, uh, their information reporter, it turns out, actually faked her own CV uh, in order to get a job. So, I mean, the BBC Verify brand, shall we say, is not exactly doing particularly well. And they're not doing particularly well either at verifying their own actual output because they're very good at verifying other people's, but when it comes to actually looking in on themselves, they don't seem to want to do that too often. No, and I think the BBC is still able to sort of trade off its, its legacy reputation. Mm. And I often speak to particularly older people who just trust the BBC because they've always trusted the BBC. Yeah. They always watch the six o'clock news. They always watch Newsnight. Um, and yet we've got to a position where... Basically, unless you're on social media, unless you can see these sorts of debates going on on Twitter and you can see the live debunking of these sorts of stories by Twitter users, you can consume this kind of output from the BBC or other media outlets and be none the wiser as to what's actually going on. It wouldn't surprise me if there were people who really thought there was um, a spate of horrific murders and crimes being committed by women because they've got no idea that there is now this custom uh, across most of the media uh, to refer to allegedly transgender uh, convicts, prisoners, suspects, uh, by whatever pronouns they take a fancy to. I mean, I, th I love the fact that, that uh, Louise has also actually rewritten the story for them and shown them how they could have done it. Final two paragraphs. A man who live-streamed himself killing, dissecting and blending the body of a cat before brutally attacking a man and leaving him to drown to death in a river months later has been convicted of murder. The man, 26, who goes by the name Scarlett Blake and who asserts he is female, says he is transgender, targeted Jorge Martin Carreño, 30, as he walks home from a night out in Oxford. 
in July 2021. And there's your picture. I mean, that reads perfectly straightforwardly as a news story, reads perfectly well to anyone who needs to know what the facts of the case are. You know, they could call me old-fashioned, but it was, it was always who, what, where and when uh, were the main things you needed to know. Not, you know, what can you conceal from the story so that people don't get upset. I think the worst thing for me, uh, although the media reporting is aggravating, I think the worst thing is when you see uh, exchanges taking place during trials, um, people, including uh, families of, uh, of the victim or victims in, in, in cases of sexual violence, have been told that they have to refer to mm. the accused using she or her pronouns, yes. which is completely outrageous. Mm. Uh, nobody should be compelled to use pronouns. If you see it as a matter of, of personal politeness to refer to a trans person by their new pronouns, well, that's your choice. That's fine. But the Free Speech Union is very strongly of the view that nobody should be compelled to use pronouns. Mm. If you happen to think like I do, that you cannot change your sex, you cannot change your gender, then you should not be made to use uh, these new pronouns for somebody who says they're transgender or somebody who's transgender. Um, it, it's a matter of individual choice and individual conscience whether you do that. But the fact that's happening uh, in, during trials, I think, is outrageous. And the fact that this is the, the new standard across so much of the media uh, is pretty appalling. Right. Well, we've now got the Labour Party calling for uh, people who have been um, uh, who have died to be able to be um, changed to be able to change their pronouns in death. I mean, that's how ridiculous life has got, isn't it? I think the country has much bigger problems to deal with than that. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. Well, I'm looking forward to the Guardian's response to this because uh, once again, Louise Tickle has said to them. So, so sex matters in all reporting. She thinks that they should change their editorial code. Um, have you got any high hopes that the Guardian editor is going to give us some uh, relief here? Well, Mike, you'll forgive me for not holding my breath. Let's <laughs> see what happens. Yes, absolutely right. Thank you very much uh, indeed. That's the Free Speech Union's view, of course, on exactly what should be happening in this case. But imagine how ridiculous for the Guardian and the BBC, two leftist organs, as you might say, hand in hand, completely and utterly disregarding the actual truth and completely rehashing the truth in order to make sure that whatever you do, you didn't think that this was a man who killed another man, that it was somehow a woman who killed another man, which is a very rare occurrence, actually, and they should have known better, it has to be said. You're watching the one-of-a-kind Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, Prince Harry's Invictus Games documentary has dropped on Hulu, despite his $100 million contract with the rival company Netflix. Plus, I'm going to get angry about something. Yes, that's right. It's time for Taking the Mic. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. If Sir Keir Starmer does manage to win the election this year, the first thing he should do is hand a peerage to Lee Anderson. The Tory MP for Ashfield has done more to propel Labour into Downing Street than any of their own apparatchiks or politicians could ever have dreamed of. His rather off-the-cuff remarks at the weekend about Sadiq Khan have created a whirlwind of madness from Westminster to Rochdale. There can be no part of Britain that is unaware of his suggestion that the Mayor of London is somehow in thrall to a mysterious group of Islamists. You might say from the Thames River to the North Sea. People up and down the country are either totally in agreement with him or think he is now the rightly crowned king of Islamophobia. The Tories don't seem to be too sure, of course, in keeping with the current state of the Conservative Party. And while Lee Anderson hasn't elaborated on his claims, I respect him for not apologising, because after all, why should he? 
If an MP believes something to be true and then utters an opinion about that, then what exactly is the problem? I've even heard pundits today on Talk TV talking about Lee's truth. Because if Meghan Markle is allowed to have her own truth, why can't he have his? Lee Anderson has always been outspoken, and that, for many people, is his selling point to the public. He tells it like it is. And while Sadiq Khan can deny all he likes that there is no bias in the way that London is governed, everyone can see that the evidence would suggest otherwise. The police, for example, were forced to let go of a couple of advisers from the Muslim community last year when video clips emerged of them pushing from the river to the sea as a belief and an ideology. And as Lee Anderson said, Sadiq has been extremely quiet on the entire subject of the pro-Palestine marches and the rights of most Londoners, who find the weekly hate fest intimidating and downright inconvenient. When the police stood by and watched as that same slogan, roundly viewed as anti-Semitic and against the law, was projected onto the Palace of Westminster in Big Ben last week, it was clear that they have lost control of the streets. Days later, another mob decided to occupy Tower Bridge, which was then closed for hours. And you would have been hard-pressed to even find a police officer at the scene of that. All of which moves the political agenda away from Keir Starmer's machinations and manipulations on the day of the ceasefire vote in Parliament, which collapsed into chaos thanks to Sir Lindsay Hoyle's ridiculous decision to allow the Labour amendment to be discussed. No one is now talking about Labour's stitch-up. No one is talking about the death threats received by MPs from pro-Hamas sympathisers, the latest of which was aimed at Reformers Rochdale candidate. And no one is talking about Starmer's anti-Semitic problem. It's all about the bad guy, Lee Anderson. And that cannot be good. Now, moving on to another problematic bloke, Prince Harry has found yet another public platform to slate his family on. This time, it won't be just them he's upsetting. Despite the Duke's $100 million contract with Netflix, Prince Harry's Invictus Games documentary has started screening on the US streaming giant's rival, Hulu. Let's bring in the host of the To Die For Daily podcast, Kinsey Schofield. She's back. Kinsey, very good evening to you. I have bad news for you, Mike. No. I don't think Prince Harry has anything to do with this. Really? I think, I think there is somebody that does PR for Invictus or somebody that does PR for Archwell in general who could potentially right now be on the chopping block um, after this mistake was made. This is not a Prince Harry endorsed documentary. This is an ABC News documentary. They've taken interviews with talking heads. They've taken multiple old interviews in Harry's most recent interview in Canada, and they've put together a 20-minute documentary. But you are absolutely right. Uh, this reminds me of Oprah Winfrey. When Harry and Meghan sat down with Oprah Winfrey, they made Netflix and Spotify livid because that's the kind of content that Netflix and mm. Spotify wanted exclusively when they offered them millions of dollars yeah. to come over on their team. Um, so I do, this is a reflection of that where Netflix is probably sitting back going, well, we would have much rather had mm. the content that you did voluntarily give ABC at some point. Absolutely right. And I mean, you and I have seen these kinds of contracts. You don't normally get to wiggle around and do whatever you like. I mean, how do they get away with it? I mean, I think that what they, what Prince Harry probably assumed he was doing was a one-off Good Morning America interview. And what Good Morning America did was scramble back to New York, take that interview, throw in a bunch of old Prince Harry interviews, and then throw in 
you know, conversations with royal experts like Robert Jobson. And that's another, re I love Jabo, but one of the reasons why I also firmly don't believe Prince Harry is associated with it is because Robert has been critical of Harry and Meghan in the past. And um, Harry and Meghan do not work with people that are openly critical of them. They do not. Right. Yeah, I mean, you were immediately on the on the uh, list, which cannot be named with a bad word, because um, I mean, I imagine yeah. that once you've slighted any one of the two of them, you are never ever to darken their door again. I mean, that's why they have such a high turnover of staff, right? Absolutely, yeah. So that is another reason why I believe that Prince Harry's hands are likely clean here. However, uh, he needs better advisors, Mike. He needs somebody that says, well, we need to put it, we need to make sure when we talk to Good Morning America that they're only going to play this once. They can't upload this to digital or right. they can't turn this into a 20-minute documentary. Because you're right, the documentary, documentary just regurgitated a bunch of harsh feelings towards the British royal family and distracted mm. from the Invictus Games and does nothing when it comes to this healing that we all keep hoping for and talking about this inevitable reconciliation. I mean, it just throws them all the way back to the beginning with this kind of content. Right. Exactly right. And when they popped up to Canada, uh, was it last week when they were doing their uh, promo for the Invictus Games? They didn't seem to do much with the Invictus Games. They just did an awful lot of sort of hanging about on ski slopes and messing around and having pictures taken and having lots of video shot. But it wasn't much to do with the Invictus Games, it seems to me. Well, it's all about schmoozing and networking. I mean, the real stars of Invictus Games should absolutely be the vets. Yeah. Uh, however, all cameras do seem to be on Harry and Meghan when they're around. But the ultimate objective was PR, networking, and, and building a buzz for next year's Invictus Games. I do think they're struggling financially. Um, you've seen some turnover at the top of mm. Invictus Games. And it, you know, it's very likely that they've got to put themselves out there a little bit more to, tr to try to generate more interest and financial backing for the Invictus Games. Absolutely right. And meanwhile, there's this kind of toing and froing going on with um, Harry's visa, isn't there? Donald Trump's latest intervention saying uh, that basically he would throw him out of the country uh, if he became president because he thinks he's been so disloyal to the royal family, which is, which is quite good for a laugh, it seems to me. But there's this very odd thing going on where um, the people in the case, the government, in fact, are saying, well, you know, we don't necessarily believe a word of what he wrote in his book because he probably just made it up to sell more copies. I know. So obviously they've not done much research or they would have listened to any of the sit down interviews mm. Prince Harry did leading up to um, not all. Mike, it's not only the sit down interviews. Prince Harry discusses bits and pieces of it in the Netflix special. I think he talks about it in the Apple Plus documentary, yeah. The Me You Can't See. Yeah, we know he talked about it with this G Dr. Gabe something or another mm. uh, and this um, pay to watch, pay to play interview he did to promote the release of Space. Harry openly discusses drug use. Like, it's not just within the pages of Spare. Mm. Harry openly discusses it. There is documentation in, in newspapers, historical right. documentation of newspapers on, on your side of the pond about his drug use. Uh, so, you know, I, that what a silly excuse for, from the Biden administration yeah. to try to justify this. I mean, do you think it's because they don't want to be seen as being the bad guys in some way? Because he's quite graphic about his drug use as well, which if you were making it up, I don't think you would do. 
Do I think that they're not? I think that they're trying to cover their butts because mm. I do think that there was some special. I do think that Prince Harry has been given special privileges to be in this country, and I think that it's the Biden administration trying to cover their own butts. If I'm being honest with you, and 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 it sounds like a pretty desperate attempt, saying like, oh, he exaggerated that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would. I always felt like there was perhaps a little special privilege because how does a prince all of a sudden end up living in the United States of America days before a, a pandemic that shuts down mm. the entire world? Yeah. You know, were there something had to have happened to to make that ha action so quick that all of a sudden he's he's living here? Right. I mean, I wasn't allowed into America for two years. I didn't see my own mother for two years, who happens to live in America, as a result of not anything to do with vaccinations, but just people from. Britain, who were not American citizens, were not allowed in. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there were likely some 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 special preferences, but um, the Biden administration and, and the Biden family they do really like Prince Harry, and they have been they have been critical. Joe Biden talks about his mother. He he. Pete's his mother being critical about the royal family in his book. He's nice about the royal family today now that he's the president. I mean, if he on a good day, if he remembers who he is. Um, but <laughs> he does seem to have a preference towards Prince Harry. And, you know, they endorsed him during that ABC Time special that Harry and Meghan, people of the yeah. year, Harry and Meghan practically set on national television in the States and endorsed Joe Biden. Yeah. I know. It's incredible stuff. Well, the one good reason maybe for President Trump not to be elected again a second time is that he'll send Harry back and we don't really want him. But, Kinsey, thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield there, absolutely brilliant, coming in right here from Hollywood. You're watching the wonderful Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up next, European leaders have gathered in Paris to discuss how the EU can continue to support Ukraine. And should religion delay the law? We'll discuss all that. Plus, by the way, I've got a new toy. Check this out. You'll find out what it's for. Coming next, don't move. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, and we're online. And of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, pressure to stop Putin piles as Zelensky reveals hemorrhaging 31,000 troops in the war against Russia. And our man abroad, David Cameron, meets with local leaders to devise a European solution to Ukraine's funding gap. Plus, in a bid to free up jail space, Justice Secretary Alex Chalk devises an early removal scheme where they'll deport foreign crooks instead of prosecuting them. Well, I hope that all ends all right. And pro-BLM Church of England Bishop Rose Hudson-Wilkin introduces the clergy to embrace their woke status. Salik Khan's been doing the rounds today, even taking time out from his busy schedule to write a piece for the London Evening Standard, a newspaper handed out free to London commuters. In it, he does his best to make sure that Lee Anderson Furore gets maximum exposure for him and the Labour Party in their quest to turn the row into a crusade against the Tories. In the article, he condemns Rishi Sunak's government for failing to call out ignorant, prejudiced and racist comments, his words, and he even claims anti-Muslim bigotry and racism are not taken seriously, also his words. Given that Anderson has now had the whip withdrawn and is suspended, that claim rings rather hollow. And given also that the Tories are now being accused of Islamophobia every five seconds, it's very far from the truth. But of one thing, there can be no doubt. London is in a much worse place since Sadiq started running it. There's been a thousand murders under his watch. Crime has risen drastically, particularly knife crime. And we witness street fighting every single day in the capital, often with machetes and other weapons. In short, London is out of control. But it's not just the violence, it's also the quality of life. Traffic is gridlocked all over the city thanks to the imposition of ludicrous new road closures. Roadworks and new designs that have turned one-way streets into two-way thoroughfares with less room for vehicles. Fines for speeding over 20 miles an hour have quadrupled in the time he's been in charge. And now, one of his hated low-traffic neighbourhoods in Streatham is reaching breaking point. The traffic jams there are so bad, buses are taking two hours to travel three miles. Parents are having to abandon their cars to get out and walk. And businesses are up in arms. And whatever Tory opposition assembly members ask Sadiq about the problems... He makes out he's never heard about them. It's a shambles, and he apparently doesn't care. Add to that the latest scandal in City Hall, where it has been revealed his office has been spending lavish amounts on foreign trips and union workers, and that's on top of yet another council tax increase, bringing the average household bill to over £2,000 a year. Of course, because it is an election year, Sadiq has managed to find a load of taxpayer cash to spend, as much as £512 at the last count, five million pounds, I should say, at the last count. The Mayor of London might not be controlled by a cabal of Islamist extremists, but he's definitely running out of friends and reasons for people to vote for him. Now, I've only got one thing to say to Sadiq Khan. How about this? We have not got money to burn here. Later on in the show, we will be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. Before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at an inside page from the Sun newspaper. And here it is. And it's a BA boss's £3 million visa racket. It looks rather like, I'm afraid, uh, British Airways have got some kind of uh, racket going on. And we'll reveal exactly what that is to you coming up a little bit later on uh, in the show when our panel return. Now... 20 EU leaders met today to discuss all things Ukraine, a day after President Zelensky announced 31,000 soldiers have died in the war. But Rishi Sunak didn't show up. Instead, he sent Defence Secretary David Cameron, who arrived in Paris to call for an increase in European defence output 
to help strengthen Ukraine's defence. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron said he hoped the meeting would reaffirm the EU's unity as well as their determination to defeat Russia's war of aggression. Talk TV's war correspondent Tom Much joins us live from Kiev. Tom, what's the morale like amongst the Ukrainians now that Zelensky has released a death count for the first time? That's quite a big number, isn't it? 31,000 is indeed a big number. However, I would unfortunately point you to a US estimate from towards the end of last year, which suggested that it was more than double that. Really? Quite honestly, the numbers could be up to 80 or 90,000 killed in action. Now, the fact that the Russians have probably lost even more than that, up to 150 or 200,000, is really neither here nor there for them, as the Russians seem to not value the lives of their troops one bit at all. We have seen them constantly throw troops in meat waves into the grinder in places like Bakhmut and Avdiivka. However, they do slowly and surely seem to be taking more territory in the east. I'd say the mood here at the moment is fairly glum. We've just had the second anniversary. This time last year, there was a sort of giddy optimism in the air. Ukraine had won those sort of glorious victories, first kicking them out of Kiev, then the unexpected victory in the counteroffensive at Kharkiv, and then that long, slow slog that eventually pushed them out of the southern city of Kherson. However, after last year, which was a very difficult year for Ukraine, where they made no real major gains on the battlefield for quite heavy losses in both troops and Western equipment, people here are in rather a down mood at the moment. Yeah, and recent sort of events, shall we say, in uh, Moscow have not exactly given us the impression that Vladimir Putin is in any mood to stop the war anytime soon. He seems to be um, sort of acting as if he can do whatever he likes because he doesn't really fear what the West reaction is going to be. Yes, it doesn't just show that he doesn't fear the West's reaction. His idea is basically that Western democracy democracies are fickle and that they're weak and that eventually they are going to run out of patience and energy to want to keep supporting Ukraine. And in an autocracy, he has a much longer timescale. He doesn't have democratic elections to worry about. So his idea is that I can just keep throwing troops into the meat grinder, we can bump out our industrial production, and eventually we'll have enough troops and enough armaments to just slowly overwhelm Ukraine. And with the $60 billion aid package being stuck in Congress, it looks like he might unfortunately be right about that. Mm. Now, what it also shows, however, the killing of Alexei Navalny in particular, is that he isn't really that worried about domestic opposition from within Russia as well. He feels like he can do whatever he wants, not just in the West side, but in the eyes of his own domestic population as well. Yeah. And in terms of Ukraine's sort of recruitment of soldiers, if you like, um, we know that Putin is more than happy to, to conscript and, and get people to go down and fight uh, in Ukraine as and when they're required. What's the sort of supply of men, young men, like in Ukraine? So right now there is a big debate over this. Valery Zeluzhny, the previous chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, before he got the sack, he wanted to do a major mobilisation that would pull up as many as 500,000 troops. Now, at the moment, the, the, the age that men can be forcibly conscripted into the army is 27. There's a proposal currently working its way through Parliament to lower that to 25, but it's very controversial because, quite honestly, Ukraine doesn't have as many young men as Russia does. Russia has 
four about four times the population. And so if it wants, and this is the worry that after the uh, elections, as we, if we can call them that, in Russia coming up in a couple of weeks, that after that, Vladimir Putin could uh, order another wave of mobilization. Because to put it honestly, I've spoken to a lot of frontline soldiers recently. I was out on the front lines in the Kharkiv region near Kupiansk last week. And many of the soldiers there, they're exhausted. They're kind of demoralized. Many of them have been on the front line for nearly two years with very little rest or rotation. This is a really major problem for Ukraine at the moment. Absolutely. Tom, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Tom, much reporting into us there from Kiev. Uh, now I'd like to bring in former British Army Colonel uh, Richard Kemp to discuss how this meeting that's going on currently could affect the EU's efforts to support Ukraine. Um, very, very good evening to you, Richard. Thanks for joining us once more on the Independent Republic. Um, as ever, when the spring, I suppose, is getting closer, there's always conversations going on about military manoeuvrings and what the winter was like for everybody. But um, I don't know whether you heard Tom much there saying that some of these estimates of the number of people Ukrainians killed uh, in army terms, in terms of military men, um, is actually quite an underestimate. I would agree with him. I think it's very much an underestimate. Um, and I can understand why, of course, because, you know, that Ukraine, uh, any, any country at war, needs to keep its uh, civilian population on side and keep mm. people fighting. And you don't want to be painting too bleak a picture, but I think the picture is much bleaker than 30-odd thousand. It's probably, uh, as Tom suggested, it's at least double, maybe treble, and even more than that mm. is, is the likely number, on top of which there have been tens of thousands of civilians killed in the Ukraine war as well. So the death toll is very high. It's also quite high in Russia, but I don't think anything like as high as the Ukrainians have suffered. And yeah. as Tom pointed out, the, the population balance of the two countries is certainly not in Ukraine's favour. So Ukraine is facing a very tough situation now. And I, uh, frankly, uh, that's to a very large extent due to the West, the United States, European countries, not providing enough support, mm -hmm. not providing the level of support that Ukraine need, needed to succeed in the counteroffensive that took place over the last few months and yeah. failed to achieve very much. So that leaves Ukraine on the defensive without the capability of, or, or even the, 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 you know, the, the likelihood of a capability of pushing Russia back now. Right. But of course, in this election year, politicians are now being a bit wary, aren't they? Because in America, uh, and certainly in parts of Europe as well, um, some in this country, people aren't so sure we should be spending all this money in Ukraine because it doesn't appear to be getting the West anywhere um, do you understand why some politicians are a little bit less keen, shall we say, to supply, to continue to supply the money um, as if there's no end in sight? I understand that entirely. There are many competing um, priorities for, for taxpayers' money. Um, but I think it's also ill-judged because let's not forget that if, if, if Ukraine falls, which it looks very much like it will, I don't say the whole of Ukraine is going to be taken over by Russia, but even if there's some kind of a ceasefire in the coming year, which I think is highly likely, which leaves Russia in control of a very large proportion of Ukrainian territory, mm. that then puts us all in greater danger. It shows that the West has not been ready to give the necessary support to Ukraine to keep Russia at bay, and it encourages Putin. It will encourage Putin to maybe to have another go once he's... Uh, licked his wounds a bit and the Russian army has prepared even more, 
or even not just to Ukraine, but maybe to some of the Baltic states, he might decide to attack there. It, this is basically encouraging Putin. And let's not forget, his, his, while his um, country is on a war footing, his, his defence industry is on a war footing, churning out 100 tanks a month, plus vast quantities of artillery uh, pieces and artillery ammunition, compared to a fraction of that being produced on Ukraine's behalf by the West, despite their much larger economies. Uh, so the West simply hasn't, hasn't, uh, hasn't sort of stood up to this situation, hasn't, hasn't really taken it, in my opinion, seriously. And that puts us all in danger in the longer term. We will undoubtedly pay a price if Ukraine falls, as I expected to, as I say, in the course of this year. And it's, this, this will not just be a defeat for Ukraine, it will be a defeat for NATO as well. Yes, and that's not very well timed, is it, given what's going on at the moment with conversations around the NATO situation. What do you make of uh, this meeting that's going on, though, and, and why do you think um, um, President Zelensky decided that this was a good time to release the number of dead? Well, I, I can only assume he, he's hoping, and, and I would stress again that I think he's been very conservative in his uh, announcement of the death toll, unfortunately. But I can only assume he's hoping to try and galvanise the West into renewing their support for Ukraine, which I frankly don't think they will. Uh, there are many Western countries that are also distracted by what's going on in the Middle East, uh, and not just distracted in terms of their kind of political bandwidth for dealing with this sort of situation, but also in terms of resources. There's vast quantities of artillery ammunition in particular and tank ammunition being pushed towards Israel um, to help them fend off the attackers Hamas and, uh, and Hezbollah up in the north and other Ira Iranian sponsors who are trying to attack Israel. Uh, and those, many of those munitions were needed and are needed in Ukraine. So we've got a, we've got a very tough situation for them. I, frankly, we, we'll no doubt hear some, some nice pla placatory talk from this meeting. I'm no doubt about that, but I think we probably won't see much in the way of action. And, and the other issue which we should mention is it's not just about keeping Ukraine fighting, it's also about building up our own defences in our own countries, and we're not doing that. The British Army has been steadily reduced in numbers since the start of this war, instead of the opposite, increasing it. Uh, and, and other countries in Europe have not done any better, with, with very few exceptions, like mm. Poland. But countries like... Uh, like Germany, for example, which did not even meet its minimum 2% of GDP target, like so many European countries, but pledged to do so, has not done it. They, they simply have not put their money where their mouth is, in any, either in supporting Ukraine or in building up their own defences against an increasing threat. And let's not forget also that what the, the outcome of this war is not just about Ukraine, it's not just about Russia, it's not just about NATO and Europe, it's also about China and about Iran. Uh, and, you know, the United States and its allies are seen today, I think, around the world in Russia, in Iran, in China, as being very weak and unable to stick up for themselves and for their allies, which doesn't bode well when you consider the aggressive intent of both China and Iran. No, quite. Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us uh, tonight here uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's not a very um, heartwarming message, I'm afraid. You know, Colonel Kemp, who knows a thing or two about battle, seems to think that um, the Ukraine will, in fact, fall to Russia at some point this year. And maybe 
uh, parts of it will already be gone uh, by the time Easter rolls around. Now, I want to turn your attention uh, to another story now, which many of you who follow on Twitter may already be familiar with. This was my tweet the other night. A friend in the legal business just told me a major trial was adjourned last week because a member of the judging panel needed, quote, time to pray. The trial is unlikely to be reconvened for three months. The defendant has been waiting for three years for the trial to start. What a colossal waste of time and money. Uh, and, of course, I also said no marks for guessing the religion of the judge in question. Um, further details have come to light, detailing that the prayer request made last week was granted, meaning the jam-packed timetable that the hearing cannot return for months now. Joining me now to discuss this is our resident legal expert, Barrister Rebecca Butler. Rebecca, a very good evening to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, I was told this was a judging panel. Now, I know that you're more expert in this matter than I am in terms of what judging panels are, but, I mean, in terms of a judging panel with judges on it, what sort of court would that likely be? Oh, that could be any number uh, of the tribunals that we have in the country. Um, say, for example, in an employment tribunal, uh, a lot of the regulatory tribunals, so the GMC, NMC, uh, General De Dental Council, any magistrates court, actually, those are all effectively panels. And these are courts that are run by lay people who mm. effectively act as a lay juror. Right. So in all of them, there would be a legally qualified individual and then the lay, the lay panel members, yes. the lay jurors, they are the ones that, uh, that I suspect in this case it's one of those that right. couldn't be available. And the way it was explained to me, and there was a sort of um, not really any great shock about the fact that the, the, the person involved asked for time to pray and was kind of immediately granted it, even though the case was, was sort of quite near the end of, of its life and even though um, this would mean putting it off for at least three months. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite it's quite a shocking story um, because I, I think, as anybody knows, there are massive delays in the court timetables yeah. at the moment and a lot of people are waiting for justice. And, you know, some people might think, well, so what if a guilty defendant's waiting for justice? You know, it serves them right. But actually there are victims mm. on the end of their crimes and it's also the the victims waiting for justice and anything that delays a trial um it, it's it's unacceptable if it's an avoidable delay it's just not fair to anybody um so i think that that is the problem here and and to be honest um it has it has kind of happened to me and mm. colleagues of mine as well right. uh where this issue has been raised so it, it's not unique it's not new i think maybe this case what makes it stand out is that the consequences are so dire yeah. uh for the trial itself and i think that's what probably marks this out because of the of the very long delay yes and the the the, the defendant i understand has already waited 3 years for the trial to come to fruition so that period of time is, is going on and, and the defendant, regardless of, of what he or she may have done or whether he or she may be guilty or not, you don't want to be in limbo for this amount of time, really. No, and the victims don't want to be in limbo either, mm. um, you know, because on all tribunals there will, there will be a victim. So if it was, say, you know, the General Dental Council, mm. there'll be a dentist 
sitting around waiting for three weeks for their trial. And at the other side of that, there will be professional colleagues, the regulator themselves, or even victims mm. of that dentist, just as an example, um, who are all waiting for justice. It, right. It's Yeah, it's unacceptable. And I think my view about this is that it's an unimpeachable request. Yeah. So, so nobody has, in other can words, put their hand of, up. It sort of has to be granted because, I mean, this happened on a Friday um, and so, you know, the request for prayer was, was, was granted. But if you'd gone into a, uh, a judge that you were performing in front of and, or appearing in front of, I should say, and said, look, I have to have the afternoon off because, you know, my mother's not very well, would they give you the afternoon off? Uh, no, they wouldn't give me the afternoon off. Uh, the, the simple response would be don't take the case if you can't do... Um, if you can't do the, the whole mm. uh, court timetable, right. uh, obviously emergencies arise and the, the court will always accommodate an mm. emergency, but I'm afraid having to say your prayers on a Friday is not an emergency. No. I mean, you know, I, I've had situations, I, one about five years ago that I remember very well, uh, where I was before a regulatory panel and um, one of the panel members delayed the start of the trial because she took her dog to the vet. Right. And I just imagine as a barrister, if I'm asking the court to give me time to take my dog to the vet, I, you know, it, it's so it's so incredible that actually no professional would do it in the first place. Mm. Because by the way, they are taking money to be there. And I'm afraid if you balance taking an animal to a vet with starting a trial, I'm afraid the starting of the trial wins every yeah, time. You would think so. One of the things that I was stuck, struck by was that I put this tweet out uh, over the weekend. It's already had more than 450,000 views. An awful lot of people, um, shall we say, who were of the leftist persuasion didn't believe it. The first reaction for them was to go, this never happened prove that it happened or else it never happened. You know, they don't want to think that it might have happened. They don't want to realise that possibly somebody got a special deal because of their religion, which other people wouldn't be able to get. Uh, no, it does happen. Yeah, exactly. But my point is, is that isn't it interesting that the reaction of people who don't want to hear anything terrible about um, Muslim communities, they don't want to hear anything terrible about uh, any particular minorities, they just don't want to listen to somebody telling a story of something that, that happened where preferential treatment was given? Yeah, I think, well, that that is what I would refer to as the reductionist argument, is that it, it's very much easier to defend the indefensible by saying it didn't happen, prove it. Mm. You know, it's like anti-vaxxers do that with vaccinations, mm. you know, prove that they work, you yeah. show me your research. These are just... Um, a bland reductionist arguments that actually don't take the discussion any further. Mm. But, I, you know, I've been looking at the definition of Islamophobia today. And in fact, uh, my concern is that even discussing it in these terms, um, uh, you and I could be guilty under the current recommended definition of Islamophobia. We could be get guilty of basically a racist um, matter, yeah. we could be guilty of Islamophobia. And that's a big worry. Yeah, of course it is. And it's a, a, a blasphemy act by the back door, which none of us want. And I think uh, we'll keep talking about this, I'm sure. Rebecca, we've got to run, but thank you very much indeed uh, for your time. Rebecca Butler, there, a barrister, uh, on this remarkable story that I uncovered over the course 
of the weekend. We'll do more on that uh, as the week progresses. You're watching the king of television, uh, the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, foreign criminals are about to face deportation rather than prosecution to free up some space in our prisons. And Mary Poppins becomes the latest nanny state victim. Stay right where you are. Foreign criminals are to be deported rather than prosecuted as part of a radical new plan by the Justice Secretary. Alex Chalk says that low-level foreign offenders should be spared prison in order to free up spaces in jail. It comes as a record number of migrants crossed the channel yesterday. 290 people were detected, making it the highest number on a single day for more than a month. To discuss this is the leader of the Social Democrat Party, William Clouston. William, what do you make of Alex Chalk's plan to free up prison spaces? Because, I mean, my first thought was... Well, the one thing we don't do is lock people up. Yeah, I mean, my first reaction to this is uh, there must be a general election looming. <laughs> the first thing is, Mike, uh, who would any sane person believe that this is actually likely to happen? Yeah. Uh, you know, we have, what, over 10,000 foreign criminals on the prison estate. And at first sight, this seems like quite a good idea because you've got about 3,000 on remand. Some of those uh, people are charged with relatively low-level offences. But the detail that we should be concerned with is that any attempt to organise a comprehensive deportation programme will be subject to appeal. And, of course, all of the normal grounds for appeal, family life, human rights, uh, the idea that you're being trafficked, uh, will all apply. So I think, uh, I think it's unlikely that these 3,000 people will be deported. Well, this is the thing, and they talk about low-level criminals. I'm not quite sure what they mean by that, but, you know, the guy who was the chemical attacker who ended up in the River Thames, he was not sent to jail for sexual uh, crime, even though um, one of his crimes was a sexual assault and, and another one was a fairly serious mm. um, offence as well. He was not sent to prison, and one of the reasons he wasn't deported is that we only deport people who actually have done more than a year in prison. So if you're not deporting them already because they haven't gone to prison, how are we going to deport these ones? Yeah, but, it, but in, in that case, actually, even if he had uh, committed a crime that had a higher tariff than that, he's unlikely to have been deported back to Afghanistan because there would have been a whole series of claims about the safety of that state. So we're in a real mess. Mm. Uh, you know, the country's getting it from both ends, really. Uh, you've got t over 12,000 foreign criminals just roaming the streets, awaiting deportation. A lot of those people have just left the system. Mm. The authorities have no idea where they are. Uh, the de deportation rate uh, has plummeted in the last uh, few years. You know, we used to deport something like 15,000. Now it's down to about 5,000 a year. So yet another arm of the state is in chaos, and the poor old public are looking at this shambles uh, and having to listen to a, a Tory uh, spokesman coming up with a new scheme, which I have to say, all experience would tell you is just another publicity stunt. Yeah, exactly right. And it looks as though there's now more than 10% of the prison population um, which is taken up with foreign national mm. criminals, as it were, many of whom mm. are Albanian. We're supposed to have a deal with Albania. Why aren't we just uh, deporting them? It's curious, isn't it, Mike? Yes, I looked at the stats on that, and I gather something like 13% of the entire foreign criminal uh, prison population is Albania. Yeah. You've got to ask yourself, what is happening? Uh, you know, we talked to the state of Albania and we have deported one or two people, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a 
staggering figure. That it's an absolutely staggering yeah. figure. Yeah, they've lost we... control. I mean, the, the, this government don't have any control. And I have to say, you know, if Labour get in, I can't see it being any better. All of their instincts, Labour's instincts on this type of thing, are actually worse than the Tories. I mean, you, I'll, I'll bring a case up which needs to be people need to be aware of. You remember there was a case of uh, a deportation flight to Jamaica yes. a few years ago and a load of celebrities and Labour politicians and Lib Dems objected to it and the flight didn't go. One of those uh, people that objected was a certain Keir Starmer. Yes. He objected. One of those people that didn't get deported ended up murdering someone. Mm. Yeah. Well, Keir Starmer's a great one for dragging people off planes when they're leaving the country as opposed to dragging them off yeah. planes when they're arriving, uh, which is sort of what the Home oh. Office and the, uh, you know, the, the Border Force should be doing. Exactly, yeah. No, their instincts are wrong. I think, I'm, I'm sad to say I think it'll get worse. I can't see uh, a Labour government, if they win the election, they're mm. likely to win it, uh, are going to be better on this, probably worse. And as I say, the poor old country's getting it from both ends because we see now that, uh, you know, foreign, you know, illegal arrivals on the south coast has uh, topped 2,000 already. Mm. So they haven't got a lid on that. Uh, there seems to be no prospect of them doing so because even the government's approach is a complete shambles and it can't act as a deterrent. So uh, I'm afraid either of these parties, Labour or Conservative, are, are going to be utterly useless mm. on any of these matters. I'm yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. William, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Uh, indeed, William Clouston there with his take on what is not probably going to happen, which is much easier to say than what is going to happen. We've got the panel back and we're joined, of course, by columnist and parliamentary sketch writer Madeleine Grant. Welcome. Um, and, of course, Stephen's here. Laura's here as well. Um, well, let's kick off with this foreign criminals thing. I mean, it does sound like they're just making it up as they go along now, don't they? I mean, they can't deport anyone, so now they're going to suggest that they deport more people that they can't deport. I know. I mean... The fact is, there is something going on here that is, seems to be unique to Britain. I mean, even other countries that sit within the remit of the ECHR yeah. seem to be much more equipped and able to simply deport people right. who, who commit crimes. And yet here we are in, in the situation that you and William have just outlined, where you know we have this inordinately high share of the foreign, foreign nationals who yeah. we simply can't or won't deport. Right. It seems ridiculous. And also this rule, um, Stephen, that they can only be deported if they've gone to prison for more than a year means that most of these characters wouldn't qualify under the rules that we've got now anyway. Well, what's interesting is the Times did an investigation into deportations and the Home Office and they highlighted one case in which an Iranian man claimed that he had converted to Christianity the judge said that he didn't accept that his conversion was genuine. However, he still wouldn't deport him. And by the way, this guy had also had a criminal conviction. Mm. He'd been to prison, I think, for 18 months right. for a sexual assault. The judge said, well, we still can't deport you because you've tattooed a load of Christian symbols on your arms. Oh. And if the Iranian authorities saw them, they could um, offer you lashings mm. or, or, and, and whip you, essentially. Mm. And I, I know that your, your conversion isn't, isn't real and completely fake, but that's irrelevant because you've got these tattoos on your arms, so therefore you, have, you can stay in Britain and potentially commit other offences. Yeah. Now, this is one example of the absurdity of the whole system. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, our politicians, I don't think... I think they hate us. I just, I yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I just can't I mean, believe And, this. you know, right to a family life can include things like, I've got a pet cat. Yeah, the, there was me. the guy with the cat, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just it's unbelievable. I mean... 
It's a rule we should have had all along. Why, why are we putting any foreign criminals in our prisons? Yeah. We to put all of them. I would have thought so. And, you know, especially if they've had lots of tasteless tattoos, I don't even believe it. Right. <laughs> Extra grounds for deportation. Extra, absolutely yeah. right. But we're laughing, yeah. and they've been in power for 14 years. It's mm. that old yeah. phrase again, that we're going to say again. Mm. Yeah. And they're only just doing this now. Yeah, I know. Well, we laugh because we are living in a country that feels completely impotent yeah. and competent. And if we didn't laugh, we'd cry, frankly. We would. Yeah. Just incapable of seemingly the simplest of tasks. You know, it's like having yeah. a child that can't do anything. And you know what? We're talking about the possibility of Labour coming in and what they might do differently. From what I can work out, their plan is we're going to... They say, let's going to make the Home Office function better, mm. which in practice means that we're going to have quicker processes but still come out with the same result. Yeah. They have absolutely no desire to get to the grips of why it is that no. we have such higher-than-other-countries approval ratings for Yeah, asylum. and with all of these arguments going on this week and last week about, you know, Islamophobia, this, and anti-Semitism, that, and from the river to the sea and the Gaza Strip and Israel... You'd think they don't actually want to talk about things that we really need fixing. You know, they're quite happy to be distracted by all this stuff. Yeah. But talking of distraction, let's talk about some other things as well. There's a lot of other stories to talk about. Mary Poppins, <laughs> age rating. <laughs> I was really puzzled by this this morning. I did a little tease on um, Kevin O'Sullivan and Alex Phillips' show earlier today. And I said, what is it that they're objecting to? And apparently a fictitious sort of um, name, which is a fictitious name, I believe, in the film, which I think we've got here. Um, the hot and tots, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm assuming the hot and tots don't exist. No, such. no. Well, no. I mean, it's, it was a it was a made up term for a genuine people of of Africa. Yeah, but when this. But story... there was no such people, right? There was a no, tribe no. There was in a, South there Africa, was a people. Which... Was there? Yeah. Called the Koi Koi or something. Really? But they were yeah. they were yeah. renamed the. Hot See, and I missed yeah. that when because, I saw because it. Because of the child. sound, because of the sound of their language. But when that when I heard of this story, I thought, oh gosh, what what could it be? Mary Poppins. Why has that gone from you to PG? And I thought, I know what it is. It's when they black their faces up when they yes. pretend to be chimney sweeps. That's right. It's when they black up. That'll be it, won't it? No, it's not that. Oh, don't oh, give them any ideas. Mocked, it's, it'll be it's an when they mock the suffragettes. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be when they mock like the under suffragettes. Under the counter, Mary Poppins. Um, <laughs> or, the, or the other thing it could be is when Dick Van Dyke does the whole cultural appropriation and pretends yes. to be Cockney. No, it's not that. That was the worst Cockney accident <laughs> in the history of films of all time. The worst I mean, accident. Just, yeah. Yeah. The sensitivity readers are just way too sensitive. <laughs> oh, I know. I think we have actually got the clip now. Let's have a look at it. Aye, aye, sir. Cheeky devils! Give them one four! Empty those shot knuckles! Aye, aye, sir! Presumably give them what for means kill them, which is presumably a bit more offensive than actually calling them a name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why are they objecting to that? Well, also, children would, would have no idea what that no. means. To be honest, I had no idea what that yeah. meant until no. I heard the story. No, I mean, my kids didn't like Mary Poppins. It was too kind of old-fashioned for them. I just think in the grand scheme of things that children these days are watching and seeing oh, yeah. the great That's world so west of the internet and social media yeah, I think and smartphones. TikTok's I mean, pretty much taken over. A word over. That, that most adults, let alone children, couldn't identify is not really top of the list of priorities. No, it really isn't. What about Brendan Rogers? Let's talk about him. I know this is a good one for you, Laura. You like to look at this one. <laughs> um, Brendan Rogers, who I was once told by somebody who knew him at Liverpool Football Club, if he was chocolate, he would eat himself. Apparently he's quite impressed with himself. But anyway, he's in trouble at Celtic because of some sexist remark he made. Yeah, he's called a woman. I'm really sorry, I forget her name. I'm not, I'm not a big follower of the sports stories like, you know, but he called her a good girl. Yeah. 
And um, I, I think the thing is, this is very context dependent. I read this straight away and I thought, well, so what? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I say to quite a lot of men, oh, good lad, good lad. I say it to my sons all the time. Yeah. I don't really mind someone saying good girl to me. In fact, sometimes I quite like it. Really? But, <laughs> but it was, it's because they were having a terse conversation yes. and he said good girl at the end. Right. So he meant it in a demeaning way. Yes, a sort of dismissive way. Yeah, and nobody should be disparaged at mm. work, obviously, but it's not, it's not really the worst case of sexism we've ever encountered, is no, it? No, it's really not. But, I mean, I suppose it depends on whether you were there or not and if she was terribly offended by it, you know. Uh, I think get over it. I listened yeah. to the clip. I mean, to me, it didn't sound like... It just sounded like kind of low play. Yeah, banter. good girl, off I you mean, go. Yeah, come on. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't personally say good girl. I mean, I think... Maddie, girl, obviously, is now... Girl, Maddie, are you? <laughs> you can't call people girls. No, it's not. Well, this is a thought crime. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying they think you can't call them girls. I like it when someone says calls me girl because it means that you know they think I'm I'm still ideally somewhere in my mid-twenties yes. whereas the reality early thirties it's like that horrible French Maddie, thing isn't it when they stop calling you mademoiselle and they stop calling you madame <laughs> once you're in your fifties you absolutely adore being called a good girl I yeah. think exactly it's not, it's not really that bad and I quite like you know like love darling it's 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 context dependent I think it sort of, sort of depends on like do they have a certain charm yeah. about how it is said? I think everybody knows when it's being used in a way which is creepy or horrible yeah. and all that. I mean it's not different you don't have to legislate for that really do you? But I think creating an environment in which everyone is constantly second-guessing what yeah. they say is... You can't have a girlfriend, presumably, now, can you? Because <laughs> it's not the right but term. But I tell you, somebody, somebody a, a young person the other day called me a woman and I wanted to twirl, twirl around and say, lady. Yeah. But, but lady. then I realised now people lady. don't say lady, do they? Because lady's gone out of fashion. Oh, I like Well, also yeah. it reminds you of just the ladies. You know, I'm a lady. Oh, yeah. You know, which is now banned as David well. David Williams. Can't, <laughs> can't watch any of that on Little Britain. I like ladies and gentlemen and being called I say ladies and gentlemen and a lot. Yes, Purely and simply because I know it annoys people. <laughs> I just say ladies and gentlemen loads. I think it's great. Yes. If you're addressing a room, you definitely say ladies and gentlemen and then see who gets up and walks out. But this is the thing, like, on the BBC, you can't say anything that could cause any kind of offence. And I think this is a real kind of BBC story, isn't yeah. it, where they've become so politically correct in everything that they say. Right. Except for the story we just did recently, um, where they didn't name the transgender um, killer oh. as anything other than a woman. Oh, my God. And, and you know, you and the, the Guardian have no, now no. had their own Guardian reporter write to them to complain that they did the same thing, didn't mention yeah. that it was actually a man. Yeah, you've got this Guardian writer who's now yeah. boycotting their own newspaper yeah. for, for mentioning the fact that this is a transgender... In other words, this is a man, not right. a woman, right. um, person who, who's murdering this cat, and obviously mm. it's a terrible case. It's awful. And I don't want... Look, I, and we're talking about women here and talking about men. I don't think we should be tarring the female sex with this terrible murderer. No. Um, <laughs> well, J.K. Rowling's upset. J.K. Rowling's tweeting about it. What are you saying? I'm not the female sex. Look, I'm a girl, I'm a lady, and I'm the female sex. No, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's actually hideous, because... I, these sorts of crimes are typically perpetrated by males. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of these weird, like, weird crimes that male, you know, transgender males are committing being described as being done by women. Yeah. It's, yeah. Obviously, it's going to distort crime statistics. But, you know, you read it, you think, gosh, a woman did that. Mm. I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you get six paragraphs yeah. and you think, well, hang on a minute. Not in a garden. This isn't a woman. They but they still it. won't say it. They no. won't spell it out. And, and sometimes mm. there is, like, an accompanying photograph which inevitably shows some kind of, like, scrum half who right. just happens to be wearing a female wig, yes. like, pigtails and then you or something. Go, They're oh, like, oh, it's that kind of a woman. And we all have to pretend, don't we? Yeah. Is bonkers. What yeah. about Grant Shapps? He was in the news last week for uh, being on board when the submarine missile failed. Now he's been in trouble. He said he got an RAF helicopter to pick him up for a cabinet meeting. 
Um, about the environment. Yeah. You know, about public transport. About public, transport, transport, yeah. public transport. He really is the sort of the, the, the kind of cartoon villain figure of the Tories, isn't he, Grant Shapps? He I thought that was Lee Anderson. That's true. No, he's not in the Tory party anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They've kicked him out. Shapps seems to have done every kind of ministerial job. Yeah. He's such a generic minister, mm. isn't he? Like, when you think of, like, the most sort of vanilla minister, yeah. Tory minister over the last 14 years, right. I think of Grant Shapps. Yeah. Now, he's quite a good communicator, and maybe he's... You know, he's maybe... quite slick. Yeah. But, I, I mean, so. I remember he was, he was Home Secretary for about three and a half minutes, and I managed to interview him while he was Home Secretary, and he was quite shocked when he said to me, but don't you want to be the world's leading country... On, uh, with off, uh, on offshore wind. And I went, not really. <laughs> and he was completely st staggered. Nobody had clearly have ever said it to him. Also, he doesn't he seem to He thought this have, was the greatest thing ever. He doesn't have... I don't think he has particularly strong ideological connections no. either way, but he's certainly not very right-wing. And if you look at... I've been doing lots he's of He's kind of Tory boy, isn't he? He's, I've been doing lots of reporting on the defect, on sort of wokeness in the armed forces yes. recently. And just last month, Shaps was making this grand speech about how we, must, we need lots more diversity in yeah. the armed forces, we need lots more female officers and so on. Isn't that brilliant? And then suddenly I do this story about armed forces being woke. Right. Tell, you know, they want to lower security <laughs> clearances for ethnic minorities and they tell the soldiers that acts of remembrance shouldn't be Christian and so on. Right. And he launches this review into right. defence policies and say this is terrible wokeness and yeah. you know, he com goes completely the opposite direction. <laughs> Yeah. And ever since he's launched Classic. the review, more wokeness has emerged. It's actually even worse than he at first thought. So, anyway, we've got some wokeness coming up. You'll quite enjoy this. Um, you're watching the brilliant Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, store your tray tables, buckle your seatbelts, because it's time to take a flight to the world of woke. That, plus a look at what's going on on the front pages. Coming up next... Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. It's not very often you hear from the Christians these days, is it? Apart from the occasional intervention from the Archbishop of Wokeby, Justin Welby, with his latest crusade on welcoming illegal migrants to our shores and refusing to allow them to be deported with his little sermons in the House of Lords. Today, though, we have something different for you in the world of woke because the Bishop of Dover wants you to know that Christians should embrace being woke because it isn't a sin. That's right. Rose Hudson Wilkins says the term is being wrongly bandied about by government ministers and radio presenters as if it were a sin created by people on the left. Put to one side for the moment that a bishop is addressing the general synod of the Church of England and defending leftist political ideology. Forget for a minute that Hudson Wilkin is making out that she knows precisely what woke means and people like me apparently don't. She reckons it's all about racial justice. She says the word woke should not be used negatively. She says there are people that are threatened by the authenticity of the movement who want to scare people into believing it is a construct of the left. Well, I'm afraid it is a bloody construct born entirely out of leftist ideology. And whatever she thinks it was invented to mean, the word woke does not belong to only one set of people who can order another set of people not to use it. That would be mad, wouldn't it? Being a lefty, of course, she holds on to the belief that the word emanates from the United States in the 1920s. She maintains that it was a word used by black people regarding the need to stay alert and to wake up. Well, it also means the state of not sleeping. And in this country, it is not just about racial justice. It's about telling people about your pronouns. It is about painting rainbow flags on government buildings. It's about prosecuting people who don't think women can have penises. And it's also about weakening the recruitment requirements in our armed forces in order to select more diverse soldiers. All in all, very far from the main tenets of Christianity, or at least where Christianity used to be, Hudson Wilkin, who was born in Jamaica, was the first black woman appointed as a bishop in the Church of England. She might care to look around the world where Christianity isn't quite as affected 
by the wokists. In Jamaica, for example, there is still a law against homosexuality. Indeed, Time magazine once called Jamaica the most homophobic place on earth, where polls still show the majority of the people are against the acceptance of homosexuality. Doesn't sound very woke to me. And neither is traditional Christianity. For now, we'll just have to assume it's the Church of England that's gone woke, not religion. The world of woke. Well, let's have a look at some of the other stories from uh, tomorrow's papers. We've got uh, the front page of The Sun here. The panel are here with me, of course. Um, Friends and Traitors, it says. Exclusive celeb spin-off. Uh, and apparently they want to get Courtney Cox, who's from Friends. She's 59, apparently. Apparently she's a pal of Claudia Winkleman. And getting Courtney on board would be a real coup, they say. Well, Traitors has been a very, very successful TV programme made by the BBC, one of the rare ones re uh, recently where they've had a real success story. Right. And I think there's some interesting conservative perspectives on this show, on the Traitors. Oh, yeah. One of our columnists, Tim Stanley, is not a fan right. of the Traitors. He thinks it's very entertaining. However, it really is declining our moral standards when, we, when we're obsessed over trying to betray people mm. and it's all this kind of tricking others and so on. Right. Perhaps we're teaching people the wrong lessons here. Oh, we shouldn't be putting this on, t on television. It's, it's quite offensive to, really, to sort of people with right. quite solid Christian conservative values. Right. I think Tim's completely right. I'm not really? sure. I, I well, I've never seen the show, so as usual, I can't really comment on any of this kind of stuff. It's yeah. Modern culture passes me by. I don't think you should limit it just to Christian values because actually, you know, it's... Of harken back to the olden days when entertainment was more about heroes and you know that the hero's quest and and you know enjoyable enjoyable myths and legends and uplifting stories and good values. Yeah, that sounds really depressing. And now this, basically the show is you, you try and earn money. It's sort of by Love Island. It's like, it sounds like Love Island with clothes on. Well, there are lots of clothes involved. I think. Yeah. I think the thing with reality TV is I I, come, I remember when Big Brother came out for the first time and people yeah. genuinely thought that it might almost change the way we lived. It was like our Rubicon right. had been crossed and it was this amazing social experiment. And then very very quickly they realised that the novelty of the experiment wore off. So they had to very start quickly. recruiting. Yeah contestants who were like wacky and yeah, weird exactly. and not you know not 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 kind of people who were likely to provide it was high drama. ordinary people yeah exactly and then within a couple of seasons that had gone and then uh, thereafter i think they just have to keep mm. digging harder and harder yeah, and yeah. really scraping the barrel I each so. time yeah i'm not going to watch it even if courtney cox is in it more importantly another story on the front page of the sun 25 million pounds now is the cost they've said of all these hate marches these pro-islamic um pro Hamas pro-Palestinian marches that have been going on since October the 7th. So they've been now going on for, what, five months? Yeah. yeah. Five million a month? I mean, well, Mike was got? asking this the other day. How much is it costing the police? So much policing and yet so little policing. Yeah. yeah. What are we getting for that, 25 million? Yeah, we might million. not bother having them there and then we can save the money, maybe. What are these are marches achieving? They keep marching. Nothing. The Israelis don't care. Right. It's making no impact whatsoever no. in Gaza. And all it is is costing us... Mm. Millions and millions of pounds every every month to, right. to police. I think it's a complete waste of time. It's about taking over space. You know, slogans and flags matter. It's like, it's like um, emblazoning that slogan on Westminster. The, yeah. po the point is, it's it's a, it's a takeover of the space. It's power power moves. You know. It's not nothing, it's not inconsequential forcing people to listen yes. to your slogan over and over. For one thing, in psychology, there's something called the illusion of truth effect. You hear something enough times, you start to believe its power. Also, what was the first thing the Wehrmacht did when they got into Paris? They, they raised the Nazi, the military flags above the Eiffel Tower and the Palace of Versailles. That is what it's about. It's about taking over public space. Yes. It's about saying, we've yeah. conquered this space. And that's the problem where if you are too... Um, sort of pliable when it first starts and it start, starts happening, 
then people are only emboldened to do more of it. I remember when, for example, during the that particularly febrile time in 2020 when the Edward Colston statue was, yeah. was detached and chucked into the, uh, into the Bristol Harbour, I remember thinking, OK, <laughs> perhaps we don't love Edward mm. Colston, but this is obviously you don't want to empower people to do more yeah. of the same because next time they will come for someone who we really right. do value. And then, hey, presto, within a few weeks, it was Winston Churchill's statue yeah. being defaced and it had to be protected. It had to be protected and suddenly you had judges actually letting people off yeah. doing these kinds of acts because they said they believed it was the right thing to do. And it's like, sorry, that's not part of the criminal code, whether you believe it to be right or not. If you've broken the law you have to be sentenced to some kind of jail time. Well, that's you know? the problem, isn't it? It's the whole judicial system has become political. Mm. And you've got judges like Tan Ikram, who seem to have very kind of unfair judgments. On the one, on the one end, he sort of says, oh, well, um, people who wear pro-Hamas badges and so on, they shouldn't have prison time because it's a very emotional issue. Right. Mm. Then on the other end, people who send sort of racist or um, offensive messages on WhatsApp should be locked up yeah. and the key should be thrown away. So, again, it's not just the, the Met that's kind of gone woke and are not fixing no. these issues properly. It's actually um, seeping into the entire... Well, you saw system. the justice story I did tonight, you know, about the, 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 ju the uh, judge who gets Friday off to go and have some prayers and you have to just adjourn the case. And it's yeah, extraordinary. but I really um, think this needs to be interrogated. Like, of all the issues that are happening in the world, and there's co various conflicts happening around the world with great loss of life, yeah. and it is only this one issue that has, has gained this kind of attention. Yeah. It happens week upon week upon week. Um, are the protesters really saying that Israel is the only country in the world that is guilty of, of, of wrongdoing? Yeah. Of Why is it that the only Jewish state is the only one that they mm. seem to be at all interested in? I mean, I think we know the answer to that. We do. We do. We do. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's Jew hatred. It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if all these slogans were about, say, um, the, the falsity of, of the climate change gender or they were, it was about racism towards black people, it'd never be on, it would never be on Westminster or on placards week in, week out in London. It wouldn't no, be tolerated. It wouldn't. One story in The Sun, page seven, British Airways supervisor is on the run in India accused of organising a £3 million immigration scam from his check-in desk at Heathrow. Apparently, all you've got to do is give him £25,000 of time and he'll make sure you get from India to the UK without having had your documents checked. This Brilliant. is another example of our basically open borders policy where yeah. the Home Office is totally dysfunctional and they've allowed this scam to go on for, it seems like, a fair amount of time. Yeah. And again, it's just like the whole system is broken. And I've done lots of stories on talking about... And I talk to people in the Home Office who work in the asylum centre and so on who say, well, actually, their bosses, they don't take these issues seriously. For example, um, they were sent an email about yeah. World Hijab Day in the right. asylum centre yeah, yeah. Um, where this guy was processing asylum applications, whereas he, he actually has to uh, process people who say that they're persecuted in Iran for not wearing the I know. hijab. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. We're out of time, unfortunately. That's all uh, from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all my guests. I'll see you tomorrow morning, bright and early, on Talk Today with Jeremy Carl, only on Talk TV. Good night. <laughs>